Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Morning. If you're relatively new to our church, my name is Dave. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And for the beginning of this year, we've been doing a short series on the topic of discipleship. That's one of those words that's really familiar to a lot of people who've spent some time in the church, but we're exploring it and unpacking it a little bit because I think God wants us to put legs to this word this year. For some of us, we may have been churchgoers and um, Christians, but I think God is inviting and drawing many of us into a deeper walk with him where we would not simply go to church and be numbered among Christian people, but we would become genuinely followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, what the Bible calls disciples. And so this morning, we're going to look at a a passage that is going to be familiar to a lot of us, and we'll try to unpack a few things from there. Thank you, Steve. The title of the message is Making Disciples, and the text comes from Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Here's what it said. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I'm going to start by telling you a story about this man, Charles Vance Miller. Has anybody ever heard of this guy before? I didn't think you would have. He was a, he was a um, fairly successful Canadian attorney. So if you're an attorney, perk your ears up. This is about your field. We rarely talk about lawyers, but here, here's one. He, he was born in 1853, died in 1926, a lifelong bachelor, a very wealthy man, a business owner and all of that. But he was also an inveterate prankster. He loved a good prank, and he did this all the time. People didn't feel safe around this guy because he was constantly pulling gags. Well, when he died, his last will and testament became rather famous as his final prank. And among the things he he stipulated in his last will and testament, uh, some funny things. One of them was he left his vacation house in Jamaica to three close lawyer friends who hated each other's guts. And he made them all three lifelong co-owners of this gorgeous paradise getaway, but they couldn't use it unless they were together. Uh, Another thing was there was a strong temperance movement. You know, um, prohibition was going on in the U.S. around that time. And so there was a strong temperance movement in Canada. And so he left a a large sum, like $700,000 worth of stock. That's that's around $9 million in today's money of of the O'Keefe Brewery Company's public shares of stock, he, he bequeathed that to a bunch of Protestant ministers in town who were very outspoken against alcohol. Now they were millionaires on brewery stock. And so what do you do with that, right? So this is the kind of thing this guy did. He would, in his last will and testament, he was messing people's lives up and, and, and pulling his final prank. But here's the one that I think made him most famous was he said, the remainder of my state, some 750000 in 1926 money, today that would be worth about $9.7 million. It's not a small amount of money. He said, I will give that to the woman in Toronto who gives birth to the greatest number of babies in the 10-year period after I die. 
Well, once he said that and it got out in the news, a race ensued. It came to be known as the Great Stork Derby of 1926. And Canadian women in Toronto started losing their minds having babies. He was responsible single-handedly for a population boom in that town because everybody wanted babies. And what, what was interesting is the timing of it all was that right after he died, the depression that was happening in America began to, to wash over the, the edges of the border into Canada. So what started out as an interesting human interest story became a desperate means, a hope for survival and prosperity in the midst of economic collapse. And so many of these people, even though it was a gamble, if we don't win, we're going to be really hosed because we're going to have like eight kids and zero dollars. What are we going to do? So the race was on. You had to have the, the highest number of kids. Well, at the 10-year mark, four women had nine kids each, and they shared this $10 million prize. And that, the, the reason I share that story is this, for, for two reasons. One is that a person's last wishes reveals a lot about who they are. Isn't that true? When you have one last chance to tell the world what you'd like, it reveals something foundational about who you are as a person and what you lived for because this is what you want after you're gone. But the other reason I I share it with you is because through our last will and testament, if it is faithfully carried out, we can continue to impact the world after we've moved on. It's one way that we can live on after we die is through our last will and testament. This guy was just a prankster. He set up this little gag, but he ended up providing for, lifelong, providing for 36 human beings he had never met. He was solely responsible for providing for their needs in one of the the greatest economic disasters to hit North America. And so I just think about that because I think it's relevant to the text we just read this morning. It's familiar to many of us as the Great Commission And in one sense, even though Jesus wasn't going to die, he was going to leave us to be with the Father again until he returned. He stood among his most faithful friends and followers, and he gave some words. And this was all after he was risen from the dead, but before he ascended into heaven. And he was giving to them some final charges. These were the things that were on his heart. And so in a matter of speaking, the Great Commission stands as something like the last will and testament of Jesus of Nazareth. And when you look at what was on his heart for those who followed him, it really speaks a great deal to what he was about, what was really weighing on him as he was going to leave us. But it also showed us how he intended to go on touching the world after he was gone. And the way he would do it is with this clear call to make disciples of all nations. Now, there is so much packed into these three verses that I'm pretty confident that among the three pastors, we could park here until summer and not exhaust everything that's there. I'm not going to do that, though. Today, I want to direct your attention to just two very important aspects of the Great Commission that have really been firing up my mind and heart lately. I'm going to share those two things with you. So fasten your seatbelts. Are you ready? If, if the person next to you didn't make a sound, pinch them somewhere, somewhere semi-private so that they will wake up. The first point I want to make, the first thing I see here, is that discipleship is intentional. It's intentional. Look at how Jesus chose to to phrase the command. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I want to emphasize that the word make is not really like a separate word in the Greek as it is in English, but make disciples, uh, it's a good translation because what he's saying is disciples are not just found. We don't stumble upon them. He's also saying that you don't just drift into becoming a disciple. You don't just, you're walking along all of a sudden, oh man, I'm a disciple. It's not the kind of thing that happens on accident. You don't fall into it or slip into it. The only way a person becomes a disciple of Jesus Christ is to be made into one. That phrase, make disciples, speaks deeply to the intentionality which is required for someone to pass from just being a mild observer, a fan of God, to becoming a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ. I've been beating this drum for two weeks now. I hope you're not getting tired of the beat because this is the central rhythm of the Christian journey. It is about not just admiring God as a fan from a distance, but embarking on a journey that is defined by followership. I don't just want to know God the way I know that Barack Obama is the president of the United States. I don't want to know God from a distance. I don't want to be his biographer. But I want to follow him because it's only in the following of Christ that the claim to know Christ is valid. God is not interested in us knowing him the way a journalist knows a public figure and describes him in an article. God is calling us to know him the way a friend knows his friend, the way a girl knows her father, the way a son knows his mother. That intimate knowledge, the the knowledge that can only come from walking together through the thick and thin of life, that's the knowing which God calls us into with him. There is no other kind of knowing God which matters according to the heart of God expressed in Scripture. And it's important to note that this is not something that happens passively. Disciples must be made. Here's a principle you can count on. Whatever you invest in, that is where you will grow the most in. Very little in this world happens on accident. In fact, when you look at your life today and you consider what areas am I expanding in or growing in or deepening in, every area where you see significant movement, it's some place where you made significant investment. You know, there was a time when I knew a lot of genetics. I was pursuing a PhD in genetic engineering. I could tell you genetics and talk about it for hours. Today, I can't even remember what G-A-T-C stands for. I was like, what? G is like guanosine or something? I couldn't re- That was like the ABC. That was the alphabet of genetics. I don't even remember the ABCs. I used to make a lot of money building corporate websites. Today, I look at code and I couldn't possibly hold my own because in the intervening years, those are two areas of expertise which I made zero investment in pursuing. I did nothing to continue. And even though I once sat on top of the heap, I mean, I made a lot of dough building websites. I couldn't even compete with a junior high school student today. I am a dinosaur in the field. I know nothing. I I know less than nothing. I owe knowledge to this industry. You know why? Because in the intervening years, other things took priority in my life, and I gave myself to those things. And while I grew in those things to which I invested myself, I shrank and I atrophied in all the other areas. 
So for some of us, that's the story of our lives. We have memories, echoes that haunt us of how we once were. I still remember what it felt like to have my 27-year-old healthy, strong body. I remember looking at a basketball hoop and thinking, man, if I just jump hard, I could touch that rim. I can barely touch the bottom of the net now. But in my mind, I still remember, and I think in my, my, my head, I could, I could do that again someday. I think those days are actually behind me now permanently. I don't think I could do it again. And that's partly because jumping high, stopping a priority in my life a very long time ago. It's a useful skill to have, but when you're a pastor, there are other more useful skills that require your investment. And so I've given myself to those things. I've enjoyed going to the range and shooting a couple times with Don and Howie. It's really a lot of fun. But I'm not somebody who you want next to you in a a gunfight because I've gone like twice in the last two years. That's not going to make me a dead-eye shot. It's just not. My wife, maybe. She's she's one of those prodigies who can... (laughs) She's unbelievable. But, you know, the thing is, like, the guys who are good at shooting, they shoot all the time. That's why they're good at it. And the interesting thing about the nature of life is it's not like you just get good and stay good. To, in order to stay at even, you've got to work hard. This is a, it's a law that is at operation in our lives. And if you're honest about it, really think about it. What have you grown in in the last five years? What can you legitimately say, I'm better at it now than I was five years ago? I hope that each of us has at least one thing we can say, I actually gave myself to it, and I am actually better at it. If there's nothing, then I would say, please wake up and live. (laughs) Join us out here in the world where things happen and move. Don't, Don't live with absolutely zero goals and stay the same forever. Because I think in life, stillness is death. Stillness, stagnancy is death. And that's especially true in the spiritual life. Passivity and stagnancy in the spiritual life is death. You don't achieve a certain level of faith as a, as a high school student and then just coast there and stay there forever. It's not something where once you're there, you can't descend lower. In order to stay there, it requires that this thing in your life, this relationship with God, remain a high priority and receives from you some of the best of your investment. Good hours, waking energy, money, time, whatever it is you have to invest, wherever you put it, that's where you're going to grow as a human being. I can attest to that in my own life. There are some things I've really shrunken and other things I have grown in. Let me tell you a story that I shared with my my community group this past Friday about a time when I experienced significant growth because of an increased investment. Uh, I started playing tennis when I was a seventh grader. And uh, I started out in a, in a tennis club with group lessons with a bunch of my friends from school. And so we all got really close. And you know how it is when you do something as a group. You sort of presume I'm with this group and we're all kind of the same. So I was really shocked when we tried out for the freshman tennis team at, at the high school. And I got cut. And I was the only one out of that group lesson crew that got cut. And the shame and disappointment and bitterness was pretty profound. And I remember walking away from that experience saying to myself, I vow to make the team next year with a vengeance. I will never get cut again. And so we begged and begged, and my parents agreed to invest a large sum of their money in a tennis camp that lasted for the summer. 
We went to Stapp Tennis Camp up in Wisconsin, and I literally did 12 hours a day of tennis-related activities. I mean, just from morning till night, nothing but tennis, 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 all day long. They videotaped us. They showed us our swing. I got so much better at tennis over the course of that summer because that's all I did. I didn't hang out with any friends. I didn't pursue any girls. I didn't learn a single other thing besides tennis. My brain shrank, but my my stroke really improved. And when I returned the following year, I easily made the tennis team. There's a picture of me. Can you guess which one I am? That's me on the far left there. And all the other Asian guys in the school were on the tennis team. That's the Asian club right there as as well as the tennis team. Um, But the improvement from one year to the next, from getting cut from the freshman team to playing up high on the varsity team, I experienced what it's like to have this measurable, thrilling experience of saying, I stunk once. But bring it on now. I can take you. I relished every opponent that came because I was like, I'm confident in my game because I've poured everything into it. I didn't do very well in school that next semester because all summer my brain turned to mush while I learned tennis. But I'll tell you, it is a thrilling thing to give yourself wholeheartedly to a pursuit and then watch as you genuinely begin to grow. And the question I have for you is, what are you doing intentionally today to grow spiritually? It's not a rhetorical question, but it's not one you should be able to answer right away. I mean, I want you to think about it, because if growing spiritually is important to you, it will only be reflected in the intentional things you are doing still today to keep growing in that area of your life. What are you doing intentionally today, to keep growing in your relationship with Jesus Christ? And that's a question I ask not to produce guilt or shame or anything. I ask it to spark reflection. I don't think you owe me any answers to that question, but I think you owe yourself and you owe God some answers to that question. It's worth a little wrestling in your heart. Am I still doing anything intentionally? Because if disciples are made, what am I being made into today? Where is the intentionality in my life right now that will draw me into a deeper relationship with Christ? Here's another aspect of, being, of this idea that disciples are made, is that if we are made, that's actually also in some ways we are the direct objects of that. We don't make ourselves, but in fact, so much of what happens to us spiritually is the result of the investment of others. Okay? That's another aspect of this idea that we are called to make disciples is that we don't just find them and pick them off the vine. We invest in someone and they become an ardent, earnest follower of Jesus Christ just in the same way that somebody invested in us so that we would decide to follow Jesus Christ. I think it is part of God's design that the Christian faith would always be propagated by life-on-life investment. And if you pause and think about it, Whether you've acknowledged them openly or not, teenagers especially, you owe a huge debt of gratitude to your parents if they have raised you in the Lord. You did not find Jesus all on your own. They led you to him in some significant ways that you may not acknowledge. You could have been born to a very different kind of family who showed you a very different value system, but God saw fit to bring you into this world in a family where the parents portrayed Christ the best they could on a regular basis. And like it or not, 
even though in America we love to glamorize the notion of self-made heroes, none of us are self-made disciples. We are all where we are in the spiritual journey because somewhere upstream, somebody invested something in us. And what I found remarkable was when I paused and really reflected on it, this is so convicting, names started popping into my mind who I had never adequately thanked for what they did for me. In fact, I was pierced in my heart because there are some people who, now that I am a pastor and I'm their peer and I'm one of them, I criticize the way they do things without realizing what an incredible role they played in my hanging on to Jesus in some critical periods of my life. I'm really convicted by that. I'm so humbled by this idea that I've even spoken negatively about people who have made an investment in my salvation and my faith journey. And what I realize is the pride of the human heart is we think we got here on our own. We haven't bent our knees and said thank you to all those people God used. Every one of us is being influenced by someone. The question is not whether you're being made into anything. The only question is what you're being made into. Every day you're being shaped by influences outside of yourself. We like to live under this myth that we are making all our own choices. I don't care what anybody thinks. Anytime you hear someone tell you that, they are lying through their teeth. I don't care what anyone thinks. That is not true. That's pride or pain talking. But it would be insanity to have no regard for what others... We are all susceptible to this. We are all shaped by the influences around us. If that weren't true... The global advertising industry wouldn't be $530 billion a year. Do you realize what an astronomical sum that is for companies? GM spent $95 million on telling people to buy their stuff. On nothing durable. They didn't buy any, make any widgets. They didn't build any cars. They spent $95 million. One company spent $95 million just in advertising alone. Why are they doing that? Because it works. Because for all of the myth that we propagated, we are making our own choices. We're not driven by what others tell us to think. We are, in fact, very susceptible to suggestion and influence from the outside. You are more the product of those $530 billion than you could ever, ever imagine. I don't see anybody in this room dressed crazy compared to everybody else. You all look like you bought out of the same basic catalog, right? Right? And that's because I don't see anybody in a day-glow yellow bodysuit with feathers on the back or anything like that. Even though somewhere in your heart, that's what you want to wear. Uh, <laughs> just a little disturbing. But I, I know for some of you, that's how you kind of see yourself. But you wouldn't do it because the influences of others has a far greater impact on us than our prideful, stubborn hearts will ever admit. So the question I have for you Haters, doubters, deniers is this. Can you, do you have the humility to pause and admit that I am today being shaped deeply by the people around me? By the job that I've taken? By the, the people I call my peers? By the people who are not just my church friends, but my real friends? How's that for honesty, right? You got your church friends and you got your real friends. And those real friends are people who are not bound to you by faith 
or anything like that. They're mainly bound to you by history. They're people you like for their personality, for the time you spent together when you were younger. But if you're honest about it too, they are your friends because there's something they stand for, something they, they, they forward through their lives that draws you. And it's affecting you. Our friends have a huge impact on the ambitions that we set in our hearts on the inadequacies we feel. So I've seen people who are in such good life, but because of the friends they've surrounded themselves with, they live under a constant cloud of, oh, my life isn't good enough yet. There's still more, more money to be made because I hang around with people who are astronomically richer than me. And so because of the company I've chosen to keep and the influences I've surrounded myself with, I live in a constant state of inadequacy and dissatisfaction because I am being daily influenced in the value system and in the the satisfaction and worth I feel by the people I've surrounded myself with. Do you realize that's happening to you today? There is no question about whether you're being influenced. The only question worth exploring is who and what are influencing you. And do you have the self-awareness and the humility and courage to face the real answer to that question? Do you? Because I find that I don't always, and most people I talk to deeply don't have the courage or the humility to really explore that question. You become very dismissive. (laughs) I'm my own person. I think for myself. Nobody's influencing me. I think, man, if you could just see yourself through outside eyes, you are being shaped every day. You're being shaped. One common factor which I've seen among all of my friends who have endured in the faith and are still walking in love with God, the one common factor is that they make choices to come under the influence of people and things and settings which draw them toward Christ. They're intentional about the influences they open their hearts to. They continue to seek out people who'd lead them to Christ even after they've already attained to a certain level of spiritual maturity. It's the ones who continue seeking Christ-centered influence that continue to walk with Christ. And the people who stop being intentional about it, who open themselves to other influences, inevitably talk about their faith in the past tense all the time. For them, their Christian faith are memories. Man, I remember those good old days when, but it's just not there today. My faith is a memory because I've made it a memory. I've stopped chasing it today. And so that's the other question I have for you regarding this intentionality of discipleship is who or what are you allowing to influence you and shape you today? If you have a pen, I hope that's something you will write down because I don't want you to just hear that now and go, I don't know, influence, and go home and watch the ball game. I, I think it's something worth wrestling through because, like it or not, the answer to that question explains you right now. It, it explains 90% of the comments you make. It explains why your face looks the way it does. I know people who I haven't seen smile in eight years or ten years. I'm like, is it broken? Is your face broken? They're always like this. Like, there's no way any human being can live in such a sullen mood 24-7. That's not normal. It's not healthy. Something is broken. So where does that come from? That face, that countenance. 
It is largely explained by your answer to this question. What makes you feel happy? What makes you feel inadequate? What makes you feel successful? How do you know when you're doing well? What does that even mean to you? And are any of those answers wrapped up in a very intentional pursuit of your relationship with God through Jesus Christ? Let me give you one other aspect of the Great Commission, and then I'm going to need to go home and repent for glossing over this rich passage with such a short and superficial sermon, but here we go. Discipleship is directional. That's a clumsy wording, but I wanted to keep it somewhat memorable. Discipleship is not just intentional, it's directional. What we mean by that is there is a certain mold we are pursuing. There is a direction to our spiritual growth. We don't just expand like swelling and bloating. We are growing in the conformity and likeness of someone. Here's what Jesus said very simply. This is the call of discipleship is teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. Here's another way of looking at it. The primary subject matter or the curriculum of the Christian journey are the commands of God. Right? It's what God told us. But I think you can rightly lump together all of Scripture under that heading because all Scripture is God-breathed and intended for us very intentionally for our spiritual growth and benefit, for our salvation and our ongoing benefit and blessing. And so the entirety of the Word of God is given to us as a subject matter, the primary subject matter, but on many occasions, God would simplify that curriculum to a few key statements. For example, when, when a teacher of the law, a lawyer, asked Jesus, what are the most important commands of God? What's the single most? Here's what Jesus replied. It's love God with everything you've got and then love other people the way you love yourself. It's a way of reducing a huge book to a couple sentences. God did that on a regular basis to make this point, that the core curriculum of, of following Christ is not very complex. It's actually a very simple thing but it's the working out of that which is the work of a lifetime. Here's, a, here's another way to look at it. It's a nice little picture of a boy and his father walking together on the golf course. I know that blesses Jeannie's heart. <clears throat> I think learning to follow Christ and obey his commandments is not about knowledge acquisition primarily. It's about life alignment. The struggle of discipleship is not simply to learn about what God says and wants, but massaging our hearts, our wills, our lives to actually do that, to bring alignment between what we hear from God and what our lives actually look like. That's the great struggle. And so I, I compare it to learning golf because really if you think about it, the basic proposition of golf is very simple. Take these sticks, pick one of them, hit that ball into that hole. Do it 18 times and you're done. I know I'm oversimplifying, but can you really add too much to that? If you fall in the woods, drop another one somewhere. If you get in the sand, try to get it up. But really, it's not in an hour or less you could describe to somebody the basic principles of the game of golf. But after that hour, will you be a golfer? Tell me, golfers, will you be a golfer? Because I told you, just, duh, use this stick and hit, it, hit that ball into that hole. What's so complicated? It's not a complicated concept. The hard part is not learning what it is. The hard part is training my muscles to do what I know is the right thing. That's always going to be the struggle of golf. 
That's why if you want to learn golf, it's not just about hearing the basic principles. It's about having someone walk with you and keep you interested in going on, energizing you to stay with the game, and then watching your swing and saying, all right, you basically have the idea, but you might want to use this club. Rather, Don't use your driver to get out of the sand. Things like that. Just basic tips. And as they guide you, the little adjustments will help you. They'll watch your swing. And, you know, I don't want to embarrass him, but I'm just going to, I'm going to embarrass him anyway. The best golf teacher I ever met is Steve Cho, who goes to our church. If you want to improve your golf game, buy him a round of golf and let him come with you. Your game will. I didn't think my game could be improved. I got a little better. Just that one. I, I lost it all after I stopped bringing him. But that day, here's what made Steve such a great golf teacher. He has a great eye for the peculiarities of my swing and what I need to fix. Okay? And so that was good because he didn't change everything. He said, you're already pretty messed up. I can make you slightly less messed up. (laughs) That was so good for me because other people, they're trying to compare me to like Mickelson or something. I can't do what you just did. That that looks like my arms won't even move that way. But see, right, your, your swing really sucks, but here's how to just change it to the less sucky version of that swing. And I did it, and my shot was a little less bad. But here's what else he had. He has a love for the game that's contagious. I never felt like breaking a club when I golf with Steve. And he has this positive... I, I found... and. Forgive me if you've golfed with me and given me tips, but I find most people, when they're giving me golf tips on the golf course, my blood starts to boil because I'm mad at myself already. And something about the way they give me the tips, it doesn't help me want to get any better. It just makes me want to throw things. (laughs) But somehow with Steve, when he was giving me tips, I don't know what it is. It's like some magic voodoo, but he makes you want to get better. Because I think the, the secret is, he encourages you even as he's correcting you. And something about that was very powerful, a life lesson for me about what discipleship should look like. The challenge is not to know conceptually what God is telling us to do. How hard is it? Just love people. Duh! Boy, now you told me we can disband the church. I know everything. Love God and love people. What, what else is there? How easy is it, really, even to love the person you stood next to at an altar and went, till death do us part forever? And Have you loved that person perfectly? If I ask them, will they, oh, yeah, yeah, no complaints. Perfect, flawless love for me. No. There's no way any spouse in this room says that. Do you know that, like, sexual impurity is bad? Really? Thanks. My battle with pornography is finished as of this day. I had no idea it's bad to look at those naughty pictures. But now that you've told me God doesn't like it, I'll never struggle again. Yeah, right. Do you understand that the concepts are not the challenging part of Christianity? It's the will to align my life with those concepts that is a lifelong work. That's the battle of discipleship. And that's why one of the greatest gifts we can give to someone is to encourage them as we correct them and walk with them on that road so that over the course of time, their walk gets a little better. And that's an important part of it. That's what I want you to learn about discipleship from Steve Cho. If you don't encourage people as you invest in them, they will know what to do but stop wanting to do it. They will give up the fight. 
because it's a game they're no longer interested in winning. One of the greatest gifts we can give someone is to walk with them, influence them, guide them, tweak them as they go through that journey, but in a way that always reminds them this is a good thing we're learning. It's worth it to grow in this. Don't ever, ever give up playing. So here's another question I have for you as we close things out. What kind of person are the influences in your life shaping you to be? I mean, you're being shaped into something. Are the people and the places and the things you've allowed to shape you or influence you, are they turning you into the person you want to be? Are you getting a standing ovation from your family and your friends? (laughs) You know, bravo! You are exactly what we hoped you were going to become. Thank you. Is that what you're hearing from the people around you? Thank you. Are you regularly getting compliments? You are a good friend. You inspire me to follow God. You are dependable. You are trustworthy. You are good, morally speaking. You're one of the good guys. When you say things, I believe what you say to be the truth. You're blessing our children. You're leading me spiritually. Are these the words you're hearing from the people you care about? What is the, what is the feedback? Wouldn't it be great if each of us had our own website and the world could put reviews? <laughs> you, you know, my Korean name literally translated as one star. Someone said, that's your rating. That's, that's <laughs> Man, I, was like, I thought that meant I was my rank, like I was number one. But he said, that's your rating. You get one star on your reviews. What would it be like if the people who filled our lives could give us reviews of the person they see us becoming? Would there be applause, gratitude, joy, celebration, or has room for improvement? Discourages us regularly, frustrates the living daylights out of me, makes me wonder why I set off on this journey with them. What are you hearing from the people you say you love? Because those voices are reliable guides, barometers to tell you, you may have allowed the wrong things to shape you because the shape you've taken on isn't working. It's the wrong shape. It doesn't fit the people that you have covenanted with. It doesn't fit the God you say you wanted to follow. You have a shape right now that everyone else can very clearly see. What is that shape? For some, it's that you only care about success. For others, it may be everybody else has power over how you feel about yourself. Maybe for others, it's I'm stuck in the same habit, and I keep talking about it, but I never change. You have a shape, and the things that are influencing you are driving that shape. So what are you doing intentionally today to grow spiritually? Who have you allowed into your life to influence you and shape you? And when you look at the answer to that, what shape are you taking on as those people chip away at you, shape, mold you? Are you happy with the shape you've taken on? If the answer to those questions is really, I think I'm not that happy with my answers. I actually don't think I'm doing very much intentionally. And I think maybe I've picked some influences that are not good for me. And as a result, the shape I've taken on is not a shape I want to have. If that's where you are, I want to remind you of the famous words of Samuel Johnson, 
that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. What he meant by that was everybody has dreams. Some of them end up in hell. (laughs) The good we intend to do is not the same as the good we do. Charles Sheldon, who wrote the book In His Steps, from which we get the What Would Jesus Do, the WWJD, he also wrote, wrote another thing. He said, resolutions are like crying children in church. They should be carried out immediately. I don't know if I agree with that, but the idea is this. Could 2013 finally be the year that you stop talking about things? Take stock of the important things in your life and begin putting legs to the things you actually say matter. Could it be the year you stop being a broken record, stop making the same apology every other week, and say, you know, in this thing, I owe you some growth. And you're saying that to God, to yourself, to your loved ones, I owe you some change. I'm done being stuck and defending it. I'd like to be different this year. I'd like to have the courage to grow in the ways God wants me to grow. And if that's where you are, then the first step is this. Make a commitment in your heart and share it with someone who's got the tenacity and the love for you to hold you to what you say. Voicing that commitment is the first scary step because now you'll be not just a failure but a hypocrite and a liar. So that pressure does weigh down on us. We say, all right, um, look over maybe at the person next to you and say, honey, bro, dude, sister, I think this is what I'm feeling that God is pulling on me about. So I'm going to make this commitment. I want to ask you to hold my feet to the fire and see me through this. I'm done being stuck. I want to start walking. You take that step, you'd be amazed what God might do on the other end of that decision. Why don't we bow and pray? Let's, uh, Let's respond together. I think everyone in this room, we're intentional about something, aren't we? Just think about your life, the way you spent this last week. There are some things, no matter how you felt, what time it was, how much it cost, you were intentional about something this past week. You made sure it got done because it mattered to you. When something stood in the way of that, you even lost your temper. You canceled other things because we know what it is to be intentional. And I think the challenge of God to our hearts this morning is this. Can you consistently be intentional about me your pursuit of me your walk with me can you make it a matter of intentionality each day because if you do you will find that down the years from now we'll be walking together you'll never be alone you'll find strength for the journey I think that's something worth chewing on so let me give you those questions over again and then leave you to just spend a couple minutes responding to God in quiet. What are you doing intentionally today to grow spiritually in your relationship with God? Who or what have you allowed to influence you at this season of your life? And then take a good look at yourself and ask, what are those influences shaping me into today. Like I said, one of the ways you'll know what shape you have is by the people closest to you and the things they tell you. It's not infallible, but it's pretty reliable.
So I'll leave you to the Lord for a moment, and let's just be quiet and respond to him in our own way. Let's do that. It doesn't happen every time. Sometimes when we reflect on questions like this, the Spirit of God will say things to your heart that no one else could get away with saying. And you'll usually know it's the voice of God because if others say it, you become defensive and combative. But when God's Spirit says it from within you, it pierces you. It breaks you. You want to retort, but you find that there's nothing to say. That's how I often know that it's the voice of God speaking to me. Maybe this morning, just reflecting like we have been, you've heard something like that in your inner heart. Follow through. Build on that conviction. Begin to walk. God, may you help us when we hear from you to go beyond conviction. Help us to put that first foot forward, our first step. And then walk with us through every next step that follows. And God, we know that for some in this room, there is a growing frustration with where they are stuck, but, but a lacking of power and motivation to go further than that. And so we pray for all of our friends in this room who are feeling that stuckness in their spirits, that you yourself would do something miraculous in their hearts. Help them to taste you the way they once tasted you, to see you the way they once saw you, and be excited and drawn compellingly back to you. We pray that you will do it because you can. And we know that you want to. We pray that this year will be a year of revival and renewal for many in this church. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, you don't have to stay where you feel stuck. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that he is making all things new. I've been pierced in a fresh way this morning as I preached about the way that my heart needs to be made new. About people and a God to whom I owe more than what I've been giving. And may the voice of God with whom we can't fight or argue speak to you and keep speaking until you move your feet towards him. May he do this by his great power and for his sake in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.